The God of Mischief is back and better than ever. Loki. 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 Wow. Great to see you again. Critics agree. Loki season two is marvelous. Great. And it's finally here. How much do you know? Let's assume I don't know much. A mind-bending adventure. Spectacularly cinematic. I've been waiting for a moment like this. It surpasses all expectations. A little over the top, don't you think? I thought it was spot on. Loki Season 2. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. You are listening to Habs and Minded. Brought to you by HabsEyesOnThePrize.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Absent Minded. It's Patrick Bexel here and I'm joined with the most important writer of Habs Eyes on the Prize this week, Nathan Nee. Welcome to the pod once more and, and I'm really happy to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me and I, I do think you overstate my importance, but <laughs> but I will I will accept the compliment. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and I hope you really has re- uh, everyone really has read Nathan's article about um, the Quebecois, the French, the, what, what Habs really is, because I think it was very important. And I love that quote. I think I quoted it on Twitter where, where you used Kotkaniemi, Suzuki, and Romanov, but spelled in their own languages uh, to mention how far from maybe the, the, I, the creation of Montreal uh, Canadians in the beginning, where it was maybe more of a French club, whereas now it's turned more international. Um, how has the response been to you personally? Uh, the response has been, at least from, at least, you know, in a language that I'm proficient in, generally and overwhelmingly positive. We've had a couple of debates in the comments about whether, about, you know, let's face it, this, this, the article itself is an interpretation. It's not the absolute correct, 100% correct answer to, to the question, to the situation. So we had a couple of questions and a couple of debates about, really about where the French identity, the Quebecois identity fits into the, the Canadiens identity and what, and what level of responsibility the Canadiens have because of the history because of the tradition and because the Canadians themselves do, do want to uphold that tradition. For them, for the franchise, the tradition is an asset and it's an asset that they, you know, it's not like they've shoved the, the French history into a closet or something. It's an asset that they want to use as part of establishing their identity. And it's something that they want to use in terms of fan outreach and things like that. So the debate is then, if you're going to use your history, how much of a responsibility does the team have to uphold that history? And where does that, more importantly, where does that intersect with the team's primary objective? And that's winning. So I think that's been the overall reaction there's been uh there's been some debate about whether or not the canadiens were you know the original intention behind the founding of the canadiens the original intention or the the purpose of the team as you know we go through the 1910s 20s 30s 40s and 50s so on and so forth but i think i don't know that 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 debate is not necessarily tangent or relative to the modern day discussion simply because for 
Quebec and the idea of, and this is weird to say, of course, as an Anglo and not even as a, not even as a British Canadian, uh, but as an immigrant, but th- th- I think the idea of Frenchness, Quebecois-ness, uh, all of that has shifted over the last hundred years as well. And the definitions have changed and the various boundaries have changed. And so I think we have to, especially based on the comments I've been getting, certainly the, you know, the, the English language comments and the allophone language comments have been overwhelmingly positive in that they want, they like having a voice like this. I, and I, you know, I don't find it unreasonable that this is, I would think that the Quebecois voice will be more mixed because the Habs to them will represent something different than it does to people who are not Francophone, people who are not Quebecois. Indeed, and and obviously losing the Nordiques is is probably part of that history as well, as you mentioned, that it has shifted over 100, 110 years. But but losing the the, the Nordiques as well, and and the success that Colorado obviously is having uh, is is changed has, you know, it might be a nagging sore or an open sore uh, for 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 people to poke in as well. And um, I am obviously a foreigner not even a Canadian, but, but a foreigner in many ways. And, and uh, I think it's, it's an interesting discussion and it's, it's the, this identity. And uh, we spoke about it actually before because we wanted to be prepared for this, but if I follow cycling, you follow cycling. We, we remember the Oscar Escadi team that was built not maybe to win, but to challenge for, for, for the Tour de France, but also based completely on Basque riders and they came close to winning the Tour de France a couple of times there one time there was a main challenger to to Lance Armstrong that since has lost that Tour de France and it's it's obviously a vacant Tour de France but you have that in in in, especially in Spain it seems like the Basque region is really strong in in this thinking uh with that heritage and, and, and that culture that they are carrying that is different from the rest of Spain. But Athletic Bilbao has that same kind of principle, but they are bringing in foreigners, more or less, you, you, well, foreigners, they're bringing Basque foreigners, uh, whereas uh, Real Sociedad is bringing in foreigners full on. I think, yeah, and, and there's a lot of examples. The Canadians are not unique in sport, certainly not unique in sport when we're talking about a athletic team and an athletic organization uh, representing a certain subsection of certain, certain subsection of society. Soccer is a little bit different and Europe in itself is a little bit different because North American sport, uh, you know, clubs come and go usually at the behest of a very, very rich owner or a very rich group of people and an ownership conglomerate. Whereas Europe is more, if you want to form a club, you form it at the local level and then you build it up from there if you want to build it up from there. And so you, you so it's, you know, it's more grassroots based in that even if you don't have somebody in the Premier League, even if you don't have somebody in Syria or La Liga that represents you, who you are, who your community is, you'll still have the neighborhood team that plays in the, you know, that plays down the street, 
you'll still have your entire you know uh, societal group you know pack pack that stadium 3000 fans every week you know screaming and you'll be able to tap into your culture that way and it's in a lot of ways it's a thing that you can't do in north america because it's really the professional leagues or nothing yeah indeed and and we have examples of that as well you you mentioned obviously the fan group at, at manchester united that was formed in response to the glaciers taking over and credit the club with a lot of debt and 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 uh, also taking out a lot of money to themselves from the from the club uh, we have the example when i think there were two norwegians getting buying a wimbledon football club not wimbledon tennis club but football club and and moved it um, 100 kilometers north to milton Keynes, and you know you start as you mentioned you start on a local level so they formed an amateur football club of Wimbledon, uh, which had their first practice or trial practices to pick out the team and 8,000 people showed up at Wimbledon Common to, to, to try out for the team. And interestingly enough, in, in many ways, and they really had to fight the new MK Doms, as they were called, and now I think they're called just Middle Keynes, but, but uh, they fought to struggle to, to keep the cup because Wimbledon Football Club beat beat Liverpool in the in the FA Cup I think it was eighty six, um, and obviously it's a story for the community. So the cup is now presented in the uh, local politicians' hall uh, in the in the civil hall of of, of Wimbledon uh, was it Wimbledon Merton or. or yeah, Merton County, or I forgot what it is, but it's 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 residing there because it shouldn't go to Milton Keynes, and and it was I think it was decided in at the end, but by a tribunal that decided that you know it belongs to the people rather than than the whole than than this conglomerate or 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 ownership group and and what is really the original group, uh, club when you move it a hundred kilometers. Uh, for me, that that it speaks volumes. I'm a fan of AFC, obviously. And they just moved down, opened a new stadium uh, just around the corner from the old one. But but they're struggling. They're, they're in the bottom half, uh, I think, even in the relegation zone of, of Division 1, which should be Division 3 if I do maths on my fingers. But but yeah, it is different. I have a trouble understanding the, the North American sports, and, and I'm sure some people have trouble understanding the European side of sports. But, but it also brings in, you know, a lot of different angles to, to view it from. Um, there's always been talk about, you know, forming another team in Quebec. Do you think the, Frank, the French side of Quebec would, would maybe be, not be as loud for, for Montreal Canadiens if that was the case? And that's a, um, so that's a complicated question. And I, and I think it's actually interesting because the situation with the Canadiens right now is really quite similar to what you've just described with AFC Wimbledon, except that there is no new AFC Wimbledon for the old fans to latch on to. And, and of course, this is my opinion, but the, the Montreal Canadiens... They have that, they have the Quebecois heritage, they have the French Canadian heritage, but it's a French Canadian heritage. No matter what, the Canadiens are a very unabashedly federalist organization. 
as opposed to a separatist one. They tie into a French identity, and then you can see it in the colors of, of the tricolore, as opposed to a specifically Quebecois identity. It's not blue and white. And some of the early jerseys had the maple leaf as part of the logo. Uh, you know, it's very, there's English, you know, French comes first, but there is English throughout how the organization conducts its affairs. And throughout the history of the organization, they've never shied away from recruiting from outside of Quebec, whether we're talking about Franco-Ontarians, Franco-Manitobans, or we're talking just playing good hockey players recruited out from the prairies. Um, or, or even you know, from across the seas. Yeah, across overseas, across from the prairies. You know, we Elmer Locke, Howie Morenz is from Stratford in Ontario. Uh, I think Aurel Joliat was a, was a Franco-Ontarian. Uh, Re- uh, Tom Johnson, Bill Dernan, so on and so forth. So, and, and that's maybe the part that's a little bit more difficult to reconcile because the nationalist movement back in the 1900s, 1910, 1920s is you know, different than the sovereigntist movement that started in the 1980s, moved in 1990s, and, you know, still exists today. So what we're really looking at is you had a group of fans who probably more closely associated with the Nordic, whether or not the Nordic actively tried to be the nationalist team, I don't know. Some people argue yes, because of the colors and the logo uh, selection. Some people argue no, because the Nordique also did not really care about having, you know, francophone team composition. You had Ron Hextall in net, Joe Sackick, Peter Forsberg, not not exactly Maurice Richard there in in the lineup. Um, But it, it doesn't matter what the Nordiques were trying to do, because what the Nordiques were was attractive enough to people to become their fans for whatever reason. And I think there's a group of Nordique fans who were attracted because they were the blue and white team. They were the Fleur-de-Lis team as opposed to the Federalist team, you know, down the Montreal, the Cosmopolitan teams down, down the highway. But those fans right now have nowhere to go. They they can't cheer for they can't cheer for a non-Quebec team, and I actually because that's even further away from what they want in in a in a sporting team. They can cheer for individual players. Certainly, I think some separatists, souverainists do. Uh, they cheer for French Canadians, uh, Franco-Quebecois as individuals, but some of them have, you know latched on to the Montreal Canadien, not necessarily because the Canadien aligns with what they want, but because they don't necessarily have a better option. And in Europe, this wouldn't necessarily happen. Those hardcore fans would have founded, you know, a second Nordique team or founded a second team to that more closely aligns with their worldview and their interests. But now that they're part of the Canadiens fan base, it's a conflict because because the Canadians don't cater to them. So there's going to be a lot of things that the Canadians do 
that they don't agree with, yet they have to cheer for this team anyway. <laughs> so, and it becomes complicated. Yeah, and, and we also mentioned, I, I think you had a very good take on it, like maybe the Quebec, uh, the, the Nordiques were, were as, as we mentioned, Athletic Bilbao, but, but uh, Montreal Canadiens is, is more Barcelona, not maybe because of, of the history and all that, but the fact that they have never shied away from, from as you mentioned, signing players, good players from all over the place, rather than focus on one group that you have to particularly develop and, and make sure they fit and, and build to that cultural heritage. That, that is very, very important. I mean, like you and I have both spent time abroad and, and we know how important it is when you're abroad to have that cultural relationship. Uh, I, I managed a year in London without going to the Swedish pub, but at the end I, I went to the Swedish pub because at one point I just needed to speak Swedish and, and watch some Swedish football. It's crap, but you know, I had to watch my team. And, and I think that is, you know, I, I can understand the, the, the passion that these fans have and, and what you're looking for. But, but, and I can also sympathize with the problem that it is in, in North American sports to, to maybe build from, 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 from the bottom up in, in many ways. Uh, we, we're going to leave it here. Um, seriously, if you haven't read Nathan's article, I, I really want you to do, go and do that. Uh, Nathan is not on Twitter, so so you don't have to worry about uh, going after him there if you don't like it, or, or credit him there when you do. But but credit him because because it's always something you should do when you when you use him as a source or use any source you, you credit them. But we have also some hockey to talk about, and unfortunately, it's not very good hockey right now, Nathan. No, it is um, it is not, and. David St. Louis actually wrote an article on this, and I think that it really gets at the heart of, of the issue. And that is, when things go right, the Canadiens express this level of confidence, it brings their skill out, and it brings more and more than just their individual skill, it brings out their chemistry as a team, and it brings that to the fore, brings it, brings it to the fore, and allows them to be among the best teams in the NHL. When things go badly, Everyone becomes petrified to make a mistake. They go simple, not really, under, not really recognizing that simple does not win you hockey games. There is a, even the old adage, you know, get the puck on net, go for rebounds. There's an actual level of complexity and there's a right way to go after rebounds and there's a wrong way to go after rebounds. So when the Canadians forget that they can actually play hockey, you get results like, last night where they're so eager to do something that they pass up better looks and they, you know, they stop trying to make plays and it just becomes this tentative mess. And I was watching, you know, with this general feeling of disgust and I think it was a reflection on, especially with the last two opponents, this is kind of the difference between good players and great players in that if you get a Connor McDavid and you get a Austin Matthews, they could, you know, give up the puck four times, be minus five on the night, not going to change anything in their game at all. Like that's, and it's that confidence that that, 
desire to keep making moves, that desire to keep beating people, that's fundamental to their game, that, that desire to set up good shots instead of just flinging pucks at the net, that allows them to overcome you know, downswings through the course of events. The Habs, I don't know. They don't necessarily have that right now, and I don't know if it's just an overall team mentality. I don't know if it's a bit of a follow the leader. I don't know if it's just a coaching coaching message that if things aren't going right, keep it simple and think, you know, it'll turn around, that sort of thing. But everything right now is tentative. Uh, David's article had, you know, examples of Philippe Dano wide open, you know, 20 feet of open ice in front of him, flinging a wrist shot from 40 feet out unscreened. And if you're Alex Ovechkin, sure, knock yourself out, but you're not Alex Ovechkin. You know, we, we've generally poor decision-making, generally poor, generally poor attempts at playmaking. There was one sequence last night where Ben Sherratt had the puck, slid it over to Shea Weber, Weber looked like it was a live grenade, didn't know what to do with it, trapped it under his feet, and the two of them got pinned by Kyler Yamamoto, of all people, who instead, you know, they ended up focusing on the body, Yamamoto got a stick free, jabbed it, and since both of them were focused on him, Puck went out to the side of the net, and the first one there was an oiler. It's, it's just plays like that, which just kind of show where this team is at right now, and how not only how you know the, the results have been bad, but the on ice product has been bad as well. You you have to compare it a little bit because it really changed more or less with the game, and it was a game against the Senators where everything just went against them again, and they lost three two. And and in one way, the game after where where they won one two one was even worse. Um, and and how. Just before that, they've beaten the Canucks twice with with some amazing play in in some ways. Yeah, it's it's very it's very confusing because honestly, we were looking at the two games against the Senators. The Habs deserved to win the one they lost, and that they deserved to lose the one that they won. Indeed, but for all of their talk about looking beyond you know the scoreboard, looking beyond just you know the stat sheet. Something flipped between those two games where the 3-2 loss caused some sort of shift in their mentality, shift in their thinking. And on a more micro level, you saw that too in Toronto, you know, the game against Toronto, because they were lights out first 10 minutes. Toronto gradually got you know, their legs under them, climbed back to the game, which is, which is fair, which is normal. But then once Toronto tied it, the Canadians completely just flatlined. It was just, there was nothing there after, there was nothing there until Toronto took a 3-1 lead. And then it was like, the limiters were off. It's like, well, we're down 3-1, who cares if it's 4, 5, 6, or 7? Let's go play hockey. And they went and dominated the last 10 minutes and got a goal out of it and almost tied it. It's, It's the period in between that doesn't make sense. How, and it's been a problem for years where the team tightens up under certain situations and plays terribly because of it. Is this a coaching problem? Is it a management <laughs> problem? I, I know this is a million dollar question because 
if you knew the answer, you wouldn't be sitting here with me. You would be in in the front of this with with Montreal Canadiens. But but where do you see the problem lies at the moment? Is it how can you do to fix it? Maybe. I mean, Claude Julien is a conservative coach, and the the coaching staff in general has a more conservative mindset. But at the same time. It's the same system, whether you're down two, up two, down one, whatever. So this shouldn't be a level of panic that creeps in that when you're down one, but disappears when you're down two. And Julian is not, and so Julian is not Terrian. Julian is not the type of coach that goes benching people at a whim and scrambles the lines every, you know, for three bad shifts or something like that. So I don't think the fear idea, you know, the, the fear aspect of it is particularly relevant. I think this is the players maybe extrapolating what their coach is ta- saying and going a little bit too far. Could it be the he, pressure of having a really good start and suddenly being mentioned as contenders and, and maybe even the best team in, in, in the North division that, catches up with them after a bad game and, and backfires in many ways and not and not having the confidence of thinking that they are and and when it backfires it's more of like yeah i told you you weren't good enough that talk's not new though that talk started when they got back from the road trip and even then they you know they went one and one of calgary but they didn't play badly in that second game that they lost yaka markstrom was just great lights out yeah they you know they that didn't affect them. They went and beat Vancouver twice. Although now I think we're starting to learn that anyone can beat Vancouver twice. Uh, it was really just, I don't know, maybe it was the Ottawa game that, maybe it was the Ottawa game because that was a game where everyone expected them to win. Because before that, you still had some level of acceptable doubt of, well, Calgary's a good team. Maybe Vancouver's just on a downswing. You know, Toronto, Edmonton have star players. But Ottawa was the one game where they, I think they legitimately played down to their opposition to some extent. And maybe losing to Ottawa shook them in that, well, why, why, why can't we beat this team that we're not supposed to beat or, or that we are supposed to beat? But it's hard to pin that on the coach because you're still looking at, at the end of the day, 20 individuals who have to take some responsibility for what they do, what they think on the ice. <laughs> and I think the other, David in his article brought up uh, Alexander Romanov, uh, and it was kind of a, you know, he, he, David talked about Romanov's not great offensive sense, mm-hmm. but I look at that and I think, When's the last time Romanov took the puck and went for a skate? When's the last time anybody not named Jeff Petrie did that? Yeah, and, and to be fair to, to Romanov, though, is that he, he rarely got that opportunity in Seska as well. So you might have to give him the opportunity to, to fail a few times, and maybe you don't want to fail when the score is down and the score is tight and, and the team overall but, is playing not very well. Uh, but, but we saw it maybe in the first couple of games, but that's about it. And and uh, I was surprised because I didn't tag Romanov to be that kind of, of player as maybe Matthias Norlander is and, and um, some of the other defensive prospects that are coming up through the ranks right now. 
Um, so, so yeah, I mean, like the, the potential is there. We've seen it in flashes, but he needs to get that confidence up as well. It's, and I don't know exactly how that confidence magically disappeared between games one, two, three, and then, and then he just kind of stopped doing it. it. Even though he hadn't really committed any, you know, he didn't get benched until one of the back-to-backs. It's, so the, you know, the two, two events weren't really related. He just lost his, his aggressiveness somewhere along the process, and which is not good because especially with the, within the context of that third pairing, Brett Kulak and Alexander Romanov cannot be in their own zone. That's, that's an absolute recipe for disaster. Their strength on the blue line is transitions, jumping in, keeping offensive plays alive. If they get hemmed in, this is not going to end well. So, and a lot of not getting hemmed in relies on them using their superior offensive skills to keep plays alive and to be aggressive and to understand when to be aggressive and and things like that. And if you're just going to go completely passive, you've you're essentially throwing away what got you to this level in the first place. Indeed, and and. Um... On the other hand, I'm 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 seeing Romanov penned in 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 maybe in in KHL arguably a lower league than um, than the NHL, but maybe you have to move some of the pairings around as well to try to find some sort of gel. I like the fact that that we don't use the blender as much as during Terrian's time in in Montreal, but. but when something isn't working, you can't just hope that it magically appears after a while as well. Uh, we have to look through that, and, and obviously that is what, what Julian and, and, and his team is doing. But it, it really, it really, really makes me wonder what's going on, as, as you mentioned. Is this mental? Is this something that uh, you know, comes from the coaches? Is this something on the players themselves? Is this uh, you know, something that combines to bring them down? Is this the pressure from the media, pressure from, from fans? Uh, etc cetera, etc cetera. and obviously you know having the fans in 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 the bell center is is something that every player would prefer because it, it really gives you a boost with with 23,000 24,000 over 20,000 voices that is on your side anyway and and carries you and and we've seen it I, I think the stat was incredible when Fernando Torres was playing in in uh, Liverpool he scored 73 percent of his goals in uh, at Anfield rather than away uh, on an away game and then I think it was 60% of those goals were scored towards the cop which is the, the home fans section and because they carried Liverpool towards their own end and, and wanted them to score and it built up a lot of pressure for uh, for the defense to handle and, and obviously for the referee to handle as well so, so you got maybe the easy call you got maybe uh, you know the, the pause never really materialized for the defense. And in, in those big arenas that are, that carries momentum like Bell center, it's, it's something that is missing from this season. On the other hand, I also have to say this, it's, a, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a bump on the road for, for Montreal right now, but obviously SHL, Liga, etc., has the, the three point system, but looking at SHL right now, uh, Christian Foline is back playing with with Vecchio, and Vecchio has had they started this season really, really, really slow, and it's now now number two in the standings, if I remember correctly, on top of my head. But but 
their top three team in the standings, having caught up from, from a very, very slow start and three games where you lost, it's not going to be the end of the world. You just can't go on because you can't catch up as easily with a two-point system rather than a three-point system. It's, it's obviously it's not the end of the world. We have to remember that the team is still 8-4-2, and two, firmly in second place. And the other thing is that the way the North Division is shaping out, I the playoffs are not, this might be premature to say, and a little bit of you know, knock on wood, but there is a, there's becoming a very established, if not a top two, then a top three, if you want to bring Winnipeg into it. If you want to bring Calgary and Edmonton into it as well, you have maybe a top five. But Calgary and Edmonton are quite a bit, you know, we're, we're talking about the difficulties in making up space. They're already quite a bit off. So you could, based on that alone, classify them into a second tier. The point is that you're looking at four, t- you know, four playoff spots for three teams or five teams, if you're being generous. The playoffs are no longer a, a source of concern. The Habs are probably going to make it. And there's also this, you know, the, the Bergevin philosophy of I build a team for the playoffs. So I don't think that they're necessarily, especially now with no fans in the, no fans in the rink, I don't think they're really caring whether they're first seed, second seed, third seed, or even fourth seed because you're going to have to play Toronto eventually at some point. You're going to have to play, uh, you know, whoever comes out of Ottawa or, Ed, or not Ottawa, uh, Calgary or Edmonton at some point. You know your opposition. You're going to end up playing them 10 times. You're going to end up playing them another four to seven times each. It doesn't necessarily matter where you get in as long as you get in. And I think that the primary, that primary goal, as long as you get in, that's already more or less met. So yeah, not necessarily a cause for concern, but at the same time, you know, this is not a, it's happened in years past. And it's something that the team needs to figure out, you know, they don't have to figure it out tomorrow, but they do have to figure it out at some point if they really want to take that next step. Well, it would be nice to fin- figure it out until tomorrow so they can beat the Maple Leafs again on on, <laughs> on Saturday night. Uh and, and let's start, you know, I cannot, Anton is not here. It's his, it was his birthday and he's just uh, moved up to North Sweden to, to work uh, in, the, uh, in one of the ski resorts. But um, so, so we're leaving the three stars to you, Nathan, because if it was me, it would be Arthur Lekkonen and Arthur Lekkonen and, and Romanov maybe. But, but I'm going to put the three stars on, on you uh, this week. So, so whom have you picked? Starting from the third to the first. Starting from the third. So third star, it's going to be an interesting pick um, because he only played in one game, but it's going to be uh, Joel Armia because he offers a dimension on that third line, even whether it's Tatar or Toffoli on the other side, he offers a dimension on that third line that Corey Perry doesn't have. And that's, you know, a, a modicum of pace. Perry's hockey sense is great, but that really only works in this you know, this zonal offensive scheme, and it's not that great for transition. Yeah, and we're not playing the Canucks until the 9th of March anyway. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, Armia's return has it had a very visible effect on that third line. They're still playing that kind of low event hockey, but they're looking very they're, they're looking relatively dangerous while doing it. So that's you no, know, that's my third star. 
Second star, Jeff Petrie, because he's the only defenseman who actually seems to care about creating offense as opposed to fleeing pucks through through a maze of legs. And first star, uh, probably Josh Anderson. And what Just, a signing! And what a signing Josh has been. Yep, yeah, he's. He knows his, and that's, I think, very important. He knows his game. He knows his strengths. And he knows that he has to, he, he's not changing. That's that's the one thing. Where everybody else is kind of changing and being a little bit more tense, Anderson's just sticking to his power game. Puck on stick, move legs, drive net. He's not, there's no, not trying to be cute, not trying to pass, not trying to do button hooks or whatever to get more zone time, not taking slappers from 40 feet out. You know, puck on stick, drive net. If it doesn't work, do it again. Draw, maybe draw a penalty. It's it's one-dimensional, but it's a very good one-dimensional because that sort of aggression is what the Habs need more of because it he, Anderson forces the opposition to react to him as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, and with the power that he has, uh, it, it really you know, puts the, the defenders on the back foot as well. So you create yeah. space for other players. Even if you continue to drive the net and leave the puck, there will be someone there to pick it up because there is an empty space to be used. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing too, that having Anderson on the ice means that you that the defenders are going to be a little bit more tentative towards Duran, a little bit more tentative towards Suzuki, because all they have to do is chip the puck by, by you and there, lo and behold, Anderson's there to pick it up. Indeed, and, and it will be interesting to see. We've seen it before in this season that you make adjustments, you, you manage to, to change your game. You would have assumed that there would have been some kind of adjustment between uh, the Senators the game to the Maple Leaf games and, and obviously maybe from, from Maple Leafs to Oilers. But Montreal plays the Maple Leafs, as I mentioned, tomorrow night on Saturday night, uh, hockey night in Canada, everything, classic rivalry. And then there is over a week until they play the Maple Leafs again. And you would want to see the coaching staff and the players make some sort of adjustments. We saw how, how uh, especially the Vancouver Canucks fixed their power play and, and then in return how Montreal adjusted to to make that power play not work again. We saw a little bit uh, how uh, the Flames tried to catch Petrie on the blue line in the corner to force him to, to not make that pass over to, to Weber and to hem him in really with two players and, and create an opportunity when there was a power play for, for Montreal. So, so you could control it a little bit different. Montreal never really addressed that. Uh, but, but you've seen teams make changes in order to, uh, to to help themselves win. And I think we need to see that from Montreal and, and maybe not until tomorrow night against the Montreal, um, against the Toronto Maple Leafs, but, but we have to see it in a week's time when they face the Maple Leafs again. I think it's important here that the coaching staff, when they're making their adjustments, I'm hoping that they focus on improving the offensive side of the game rather than tightening up the defensive side of the game. I know the defensive inclination is probably their go-to, but right now the problem isn't in, in destruction. The Canadians are still playing fairly well defensively. 
The problem is that if you don't create, you're going to defend 80, 90, 95% of the game. And you're not going to win that way. You can't park the bus in hockey. Indeed. And and you you, you rarely can in football anymore either. But but it, it and obviously we just saw an incredible display of of uh, of Tom Brady in, in American football for for the Super Bowl and you know you 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 can't park the bus in 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 American football either. It's it's not many sports where you can park the bus anymore because the talent is there to to break it up and we need to see Montreal do that. And we know that Montreal has the talent to do it. They demonstrated it, not just in, you know, you know, it's not just Vancouver that's been the punching bag. They demonstrated against Edmonton, they demonstrated against Calgary, and then you've seen brief flashes of it against Toronto, against, you know, against Edmonton last night, even against Ottawa. They have the tools. The question is whether or not they're willing to take it out of the box. Indeed. And, and we're going to leave you with this. We, we hope to get back to you after the, the Maple Leaf games. Um, I thank Nathan uh, Nee for, for joining us again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, it, it's been a really pleasure. I love having you on the pod. You're, you're making me speak slower and, and you're making me consider my words a lot. Nathan is sometimes, or as most of us say, you are the brain of Eyes on the Prize. We can ask you anything and you will have an answer for it. Uh, really great guy. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, be sure to stay safe and... and uh, uh, take care of each other in, in these circumstances and um, we have a game tomorrow night that hopefully will will turn the table and, and break the spell that has been haunting the, the Canadians for, for the last few games. Once more, Nathan, thank you for, for joining me. Thank you, Pratt. <laughs>